Welcome to the Holy Donors Podcast. Join Andrew, Matt, Ren, and me, Thaddeus, as every week we bring you inspiring stories of radical generosity that have changed the world. So, Andrew, you ready to get started? Can't wait. between men is not lack of strength, not lack of knowledge, but rather lack of will. But the new leadership is in sacrifice, it is in self-denial, it is in love, it is in loyalty, it is in fearlessness and humility, and it is in the perfectly disciplined will. This is not only the difference between men, this is the difference between great and little men. Thank you, Jim. Welcome back to episode three of Vince Lombardi. That was that was an incredible little clip that we just listened to. Powerful words coming from a gentleman who changed the way football was played yeah. generations ago. Yeah, and we'll talk more about it uh, as the show goes on. Some of the principles that he talked about in that speech. Yeah, Wow. So we've got one of our, our good friends back on uh, episode three. Thaddeus, you want to say hello? Great to be back here in the friendly confines of the Red Sea Studios talking about holy donors and specifically Vince Lombardi. Thanks, Matt. Absolutely. It's been a, it's been a fun ride so far. It's been enlightening. It's been inspiring. It's been, been a little terrifying. And yeah, a little I've, terrifying. I've learned so, <laughs> I've learned so much listening, listening in in the, in the background. Um, I'm excited to, to participate actively this time. Very good, and and I heard that you might have been inspired to get matching tattoos to to Father Harry with work tattooed on one set of your knuckles and play on the other set. Is is that is that a true rumor? Uh, I can neither confirm nor deny that rumor, uh, mostly because I can't confirm or deny that it's on my knuckles that I'm having those things tattooed. <laughs> well, I'll just mostly leave it because at, I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> No, mostly because that's not happening. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so recap real quick here. Last episode, he uh, played a little semi-pro and coached high school. Right. Then he went and coached for college, Went spent some time at Fordham University again. Fordham and West Point, yep. In West Point, and then we kind of left off after he had moved on from the Giants as an mm-hmm. assistant and made a deal with, with Ren's favorite team, the Green Bay Packers. That's right, yeah. Go Cheese. <laughs> but then the the interesting thing that you you ended us at was this special moment when Vince is in his office and he's got tears in his eyes and he says, "Hey, I think I may have bitten off more than I can chew," which is totally not in his character from what we've learned thus far. Yeah. And you left us hanging right there, so now I'm I'm dying to know what happens next. Yeah, so Vince uh sticks it out with a team and uh, he really kind of dives in with training camp. So up to this point, they had had a coach, S- Scooter McLean was the head coach before, and S- Scooter was one of those coaches that kind of let the players figure it out on their own. He was lackadaisical and, you know, didn't like to run a tight ship. And so Lombardi came in and instantly turned things around. Training camp was brutal. They actually, uh, you know, like I said, faith was very important to him. Green Bay at that time, probably, you know, uh, close to it today, but at that time, 75% of the city was Catholic. 
So a lot of churches and uh, the Norbertine Order, which are uh, called the White Fathers, they have a presence in Green Bay, and they have St. Norbert College. And so Vince reached out, asked if they could have training camp there. So he worked them hard, worked them real hard, got them in shape. Players were commonly uh, throwing up on the sidelines. Uh, Lombardi didn't like them to have water breaks. He felt like it was a sign of weakness to need water during practice. They'd run sprints. They'd do these drills where guys would chase each other around and just run for time, uh, you know, hours and hours. But he was really tough because he was trying to break them down so he could build them back up in the image that he saw them being so they would be great football players. You know, is it fair to say it kind of reminds me of Babe Ruth when he arrived at the New York Yankees? I mean, they weren't they weren't a superstar organization yeah. until he got there. But then he, I mean, you get the house that Ruth built after uh, Babe Ruth arrived, right, and, uh, with the Yankees. Yeah, I mean, the Packers have no idea what's coming, but Lombardi is going to fundamentally transform them for the next 60 years. Going to turn them into a great, 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 great <laughs> NFL franchise. I mean, a couple Super Bowls. Yeah. Just always. It's funny that we tease Ren because he has probably never been to a football game in his <laughs> life and really just cares about hockey. So <laughs> if we were talking about the Detroit Red Wings, then I think that would be more fighting words. Uh, I can confirm I have not been to a game. I haven't <laughs> okay. watched an NFL game in at least 10 years. Yeah, okay. There you go. Yeah, see. Okay, good. So in discussions, you know, preparing for this episode, mm-hmm. you mentioned a special drill that Lombardi would do that I think is fantastic. But... You think it's fantastic. <laughs> uh, he had this drill called the nut, Nutcracker Drill, and it kind of became his signature drill. And basically what he would do was is... He, was he one of the first coaches to to have his players do ballet? Is that what this was? <laughs> no. He was definitely not the first and had nothing to do with ballet. Oh, okay. No, okay. the Nutcracker drill kind of was nutcracker. they would basically kind of form a, two walls and they'd put a, um, a running back uh, or a, an offensive player versus a defensive player. Give them the ball and say, you got to get to the other side. Mm-hmm. So everybody knew what was coming. And it was just the the sole purpose of it was to instigate violence against each other. Again, mm-hmm. we talked about it last episode. Lombardi really believed that football was a violent sport. It was a controlled violence that comes from, you know, his sort of in, in part formed by his Jesuit training, you know, this the idea of battle and the idea of physical exertion and the nutcracker drill really brought out that violence. Uh, but then when the drill was over, when practice was over, when the game was over, uh, it was all left on the field. So it seems like he really has this connection with pain, almost like a philosophy of pain. Yeah, I mean, he he has images of pain throughout his life, right? The Italian roots, there's a lot of imagery that points out pain and suffering, spiritual and religious images. His mother disciplined him with pain. His father insisted that pain wasn't real. The The Jesuits believed in free will, born out of hope, that pain was an ends to a means. So yeah, Lombardi was not afraid of, of pain. He was not afraid of physical pain. In fact, to motivate his players a lot of times, he would get in their face and he would say, I want you to hit me as hard as you can. I mean, he would get in there as the coach and take some of the most vicious hits from his players so that he would show them, look, I can take it. This is what you need to be willing to accept as well. And how old was he at this time? 
Well, he was 42 when he got his first head coaching job for the Packers. So this is about that. I mean, age. He wasn't a spring chicken by any no, means. No, and if I had an NFL football player hitting me at 41, I would be, I'd be in a world of hurt. Just to put it in perspective, can you imagine if St. Francis of Assisi at 41 had tried to step in there and take a take a hit? It would be tough. He was almost he was at the end his, of his life yeah, at exactly. that point in time. That's what I'm trying to say. Yeah. <laughs> it was a borrowed time at 41, right? Yep. <laughs> That's yes, right. It was. So Lombardi really wanted to, like I said, break down the Packers and build them back up. He had a play that they'd started running at the Giants called the Sweep. He felt like every team, every coach needed a play that defined them, that they could call over and over and over again in a game and force the defense to stop them. And if the defense could stop them, then they would win the game. But if they wouldn't, then they would just keep pounding this play. And so his play was the power sweep, also became known as the Packer sweep, because they ran it so long with so much perfection. And so the call would be red right 49 on two. So that meant that they were going up the nine gap. And the way the play would work is they would hand off to the running back, the guards would pull, the everybody would run out to the right if it was called to the right, and the goal of the, the running back was to follow behind his lead blocker until he saw an opening. They call it running to daylight. And when he saw an opening, he would cut wherever he saw that opening. And so, again, going back to this Jesuit free will within a plan, it was everybody's going to do these things in order, and then you're going to use your free will to make the right decision. And so they would run the sweep over and over again, and it became, uh, you know, Teams couldn't stop it, and that's part of what made them as good as they did. I think it's important for us to remember Lombardi is living out and trying to teach this philosophy of pain and suffering within a society that still had a very traditional sense of masculinity. Mm, yeah. Right? Of of men, uh, still a lot of men doing work with their hands, coming out of families and, and societies, let's say neighborhoods, where manual labor was very common, uh, and men were more maybe attuned to physical suffering, danger, uh, being hurt on the job, their fathers or grandfathers, uncles, brothers, um, having had that. And we're also coming out of a society where probably the guys he's coaching— are um what what year are we in 1959 okay so these are not baby but these are not the children of the world war ii generation these are the guys right right ahead of that mm. but still very much a, a society shaped and influenced in their idea of manliness very much shaped by the war what they what they believe the the veterans and the fighters in world war ii accomplished what that Meant. So I think all you know that all has to be factored in here the way we uh, understand him embodying his his Catholic beliefs and mm -hmm. and what he could coach to and what he could demand of his players. Right. So uh, yeah, I think those are excellent points. He gets through training practice this first year, and in September twenty seventh, nineteen fifty nine, Green Bay beats the Chicago Bears, their rival, six to nine, to launch Lombardi's legacy as head coach. They end up finishing the first season seven and five. It's first winning record in over a decade, and Lombardi is named the NFL Coach of the Year. Hmm. So that's interesting. To me, 7-5 and five is not a great record, Yeah. yet 
did he win that because he was he took the Green Bay Packers from not even in the conversation yeah. to being a part of the conversation. Yeah, absolutely. Like I said before in last episode, Green Bay was in danger of losing the Packers because they were so bad. So in 1958, the season right before, their record was 110-1. and wow. So they were pathetic. It's not like Lombardi brought in. He didn't build a super team by making trades and bringing in other players. He identified the talent that was on the field. Bart Starr was on the team. Paul Hornham was on the team. They had good players. They just had no heart. They had no passion. They didn't have that training. They had Scooter. And they had Scooter McClain. And it was really Lombardi using those players to reconfigure who the Packers were as a team. And they they turned the season around. They turned their entire uh, history around in that season. So um, Lombardi starts making it home. They buy a new house in the suburbs. But again, Lombardi is very much an absent father, absent husband. Um, Friends call their home a sad home because he was never there. And when he was, Mm -hmm. he was always arguing with his son, Vincent, and just didn't have a great relationship with anybody. They did like to party during the season. The Lombardi house was party central. So after every game on Sunday night, they would host friends, family, players, priests in their basement. And they would have uh, drinks and cocktails. And Lombardi was always the life of the party. Mm. Um, people talk about all the time. His, his laugh was just infectious. And you could hear it anywhere they were. Do we know what his favorite cocktail was? I think he was a scotch man. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I know later uh, somebody referenced that he was ordered double vodkas on the rocks, and they said that was weird because he usually always drinks scotch. But again, uh, this was a tough time for Marie, for the family. She became depressed again, but she did throw herself into community service and really mentoring the other coaches' wives. So she knew as these new coaches would come in, the wives would show up, she would be begin preparing the family for what life with Coach Lombardi was going to be like. You know, I made that observation about him coaching from within a a very traditional idea of masculinity. And he's obviously coaching very much from within his uh, Catholic faith and that uh, that tradition of Catholic, that Catholic moral tradition. But we're on the cusp of the 1960s, and we all know that much of what was considered to be mainstream, agreed upon values began to be undermined or transformed how depending on on one's perspective but we know a lot was going to be uh, shuffled around in the 1960s how did Lombardi respond to those those changes that's a great question and Lombardi very much was we talked about last episode that he pretty quickly learned that as a priest uh, he would be mentoring young men and as a coach he's mentoring young men he can just do it with a little more emotion and flavor and color. And so he definitely still felt that way. There were issues with having black players in the league around this time, right? There, a lot of hotels wouldn't host them. A lot of uh, restaurants, they were still second-class citizens in the 1960s. And Lombardi wouldn't have that. He, in his second season, he called all the Green Bay hotels and taverns and said, if you don't serve black athletes, you're not going to serve any of my athletes. Uh, he would do the same thing when he traveled. In fact, they had a game in Georgia, and they ended up staying at Fort Benning because it was one of the only locations where they would ha- host integrated groups, and he wanted his black players to be able to stay with his white players as the team. In fact, the players called him his secret brother because he was so friendly to them. Hmm. Lombardi was a big golfer, and when he would play golf, 
uh, in Wisconsin, a lot of times during the school year, the caddies would be Native Americans. And during the summer, they would bring white students into caddy. And Lombardi always insisted that, no, I want the Native American caddies even during the summer. And he was a very generous tipper. In fact, there was even a story where he would make personal loans to some of the Native American families wow. for them to, uh, you know, start small businesses or buy houses. And he was just a very, he was a generous guy to certainly those in need. Do you have thoughts or comments to share with the show or ideas for future holy donor subjects? Send them to us and your comments might be included in a season wrap party. Get in touch with us on Instagram at holy donors. Faith is still very important to him. Mass was a daily ritual for him. He continued his devotion to St. Anthony's and St. Jude. He kept statues of them in his house. He kept a rosary in his pocket that he got back when he was in uh, high school cathedral prep, and he was constantly praying the rosary during practice when he was out and about. And then he even had kind of a custom uh, steering wheel cover made with the rosary beads so he could pray while he drove. Wow. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean that's amazing. I had never heard of of that practice before, and and to hear hear it that that was something that that Lombardi did. Mm-hmm. He uh, he had two books that he carried with him everywhere. One was the Bible. Um, it was a picture Bible, which I think is hilarious, but uh, it had real big pictures. And then one was the Mary Knoll Missal with the prayers for Mass. Okay. Um, he attended St. Willibrord Parish in downtown Green Bay, which was staffed by the Norbertines. And he loved priests and nuns. In fact, he always had a whole group of priests that would attend football games, stand on the sideline with him. They would come to the after after game parties. It was just very important to him that his life demonstrated his devotion to his faith. He didn't talk about it in interviews, which I thought was interesting. He didn't talk about his faith a lot in interviews because he felt like it was, even though he could publicly be friends with priests, he could attend mass, he felt like on a stage like that, radio or TV, that his faith was still very private to him in those areas. Mm -hmm. Interestingly enough, right, we see this as devotion. His son, who he always had a strained relationship with, actually saw it as him, as his dad would go to Mass to repent for his anger, but he knew that his anger helped him to be a better coach. So, you know, right, like we all have our vices, and Coach Lombardi knew his one of his vices was anger, and that came out against his son in particular in a lot of ways, but he was constantly kind of trying to um, repent of that. that is- in the research that you did, Andrew, how did biographers try to make sense of Lombardi's obviously deep devotion to his faith versus the lack of a, a loving marriage? Yeah. So Susan had Susan his daughter had a good quote uh, I believe it was after he died where she said I know how much he loved us it wasn't love that we questioned it was time that we never got mm-hmm. and I think that was he was so committed to winning and in fact as the season goes on which we'll talk about uh, the rest of the his time with the Packers here in just a minute as the seasons went on he became even more invested as he won because he felt like when you're striving to get to the top, it's a struggle. When you're at the top, it's even a harder struggle. There's more pressure. And so he would invest even more time in coaching as his career went on because he was so terrified of falling off that pedestal and losing. And so, again, 
right? Like, how do biographers, how do we sort of, you know, jive this faith and family question? There really is no answer. And I think that that's something that we'll talk about when we're evaluating, you know, his holy donor status, because that is an obvious negative mark against him in this area is how he treated his family. But from their perspective, they knew that it was not a lack of love. They knew that it was just a prioritization of time into his love for football. And to be honest, I mean, all of us know that if we looked at our lives honestly, when we have those moments of real introspection, we know we're all people of contradictions. You know, all we're all kind of yeah. hypocrites to one degree or another. And we can't explain away right. things that are out of whack in our lives. Yeah, and you just wonder if you had a biographer who goes yeah. back and, and tells the story of your life, you know, yeah. Andrew Robinson or uh, Thaddeus Romanski and Matt Bond and mm-hmm. what what the report would be there and whether you'd be proud of what you read um, in that case. I think I want to hire a biographer for my life. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. You know, and taking it just a step, a step deeper too, we know his, his theory on winning and we know his theory on second place. We know his theory on a good loser, but also kind of his, his thoughts on it's, it's not necessarily the win, but it's the, it's a process Mm. To getting to that win, very much. I wonder if at some point in time he he had this vice of almost an addiction to being at that level, mm-hmm. and that he felt that not only was he letting himself down, he was letting everybody else down from that, and he had yeah. the image of he is the guy, yeah, and he was holding on to that a little bit, which which is kind of putting the focus away from where where we're taught within our faith to put our focus. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, he was very addicted to winning. He craved power. He admitted this multiple times in his life. He wanted control, and he was terrified of losing. Almost yeah. probably more than it craved winning, he was terrified of losing. Yeah. And so it did. It it sort of twisted a lot of his priorities, but he had, and we'll talk about it as we go on, but as a result of his commitment to coaching and mentoring the players, gosh, Every one of his former players talked about the impact that he had personally on their life and how he made them better men, men of character. Talk um, about his relationship with Bart Starr. Yeah, so... And who Bart Starr was. So Bart Starr was the quarterback for the Green Bay Packers. He actually wasn't the starter, and he had to sort of fight for his starting role. Ultimately, he ends up you know, becoming the, the great Packer quarterback, gets into the Hall of Fame. But when he started, Lombardi would chew him out even harder than anybody else on the field in front of the other players. And at one point, Bart Starr came and pulled him aside and said, Coach, uh, in his office, Coach, I can take all the chewing out you want to give me. Just do it in the office, not in front of the other guys, because I have to lead these guys on the field. And with you chewing me out, I can't retain that sense of authority. And so Lombardi, to his credit, said, okay, never chewed him out in front of other players again. And Bart Starr Mm. was one of the closest men to Lombardi in his life. In fact, Lombardi felt like he had three sons, his own son, Vincent, Bart Starr, who was kind of the perfect son, right? Never did anything wrong, always wanted to please him, uh, would study and do everything he could. And then Paul Horning, who we'll talk about in a minute, who was kind of the wild child, um, who did everything that Vince Lombardi would never do, right? Mm-hmm. He was a partier. He uh, he was just, a, you know, lived this crazy life. But Lombardi always saw Paul as his third son, who was kind of like the rebel child. Wow. 
So we know in 1959, yep. they went seven and five. Yep. How did the rest of the seasons go? Yeah, excellent question. So uh, 1960, his second year, they get all the way to the championship game and they lose to the Eagles on a very close finish. In fact, afterwards, Lombardi told his players, he said, never again will you lose a championship game. And they never did. 1961 was really when people started to recognize Lombardi as as a almost as a celebrity, certainly in Green Bay, but really across the world. He became friends with JFK. Um, JFK, during the, his 1960 campaign, he ended up doing a rally on the steps of St. Willibrord in Green Bay. And oh, wow. uh, he and uh, Vince Lombardi, they connected, and they actually kept up a correspondence the rest of JFK's life. He got a new contract after this, so he was now making $50,000 a year. That was big money for a football coach, but everybody was continued to be afraid of him. He was just a very volatile man, and you never knew kind of when he was going to blow up. But one thing that did blow up in a positive way this year, in 1961, they started the annual Bishop's Charities game. And so huh. they would they would use the preseason games, and the Bishop, um, the Diocese of Green Bay, would be able to sell tickets to the games and then run, consen- run the um, program, excuse me, and sell sponsorships for the programs. And that wasn't started by Lombardi, but he definitely loved the idea, endorsed it, and helped to promote it. So they ran that for nearly 60 years, the Bishop's Charities game. They raised over $4 million for the Diocese of Green Bay through that program. So 1961, they kind of come out of the gates as one of the favorites in the NFL. Every team would circle the game against Green Bay, and Lombardi, always looking for ways to fire his players up, would use this. Everybody's looking forward to this game. We got to run more. We got to run harder. We got to work harder if we're going to maintain our time at the top. I mean, it was just he always (coughs) – that hurt my throat. How do you talk like that for 57 years? (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, so anyways, uh, he doubled down on training camp. He got really intense. So interestingly enough, though, in 1961, there were three players who were called up to the draft in response to the Cold War. People didn't realize this at the time, but Lombardi actually lobbied to the Pentagon that their call should be deferred until the end of the season because it was three of his best guys. Nitschke, who was a key defender, it was Paul Horning, who was their starting running back, and I can't remember the third player. But uh, he lobbied with the congressman, he lobbied with the Pentagon, and ultimately they did get called up, but Horning in particular was able to secure weekend passes to come back and play in most of the games that season. They beat the Giants in the championship game, 37 nothing, and JFK sent them a personal telegram congratulating them on the win. Up to this point, f- football is a great sport. It is spectated, but how popular was it? Yeah, in 1962, the Packers and the Lions played on Thanksgiving, which was still an annual tradition, right? And at that time, there were 54 million households in America. 49 million of them had a TV, and that game, 12 million of them watched on TV on Thanksgiving Day. So it was definitely becoming a more popular game. That led to more ad sales, more money for the from the networks, and they were able to put that money into the owners who could then pay bigger contracts. So it, the introduction of TV and TV revenue mm-hmm. just allowed the NFL to continue to grow at a very, very rapid rate. It just rate. kind of snowballed from there. It did, yes. So in 1963, uh, interesting point, they keep playing football, but Lombardi decides he needs to quit smoking. So in typical Lombardi fashion, he uh, puts down his pack one day, says, I'm not smoking again, never touch a cigarette the rest of his life. 
Wow. Sounds very Vince Lombardi to yes, me. Yes, it does. That extreme discipline. Self-discipline, yes. Able to conquer uh, anything through sheer force of will. Um, in 1963, in November of that year, JFK was assassinated. And Lombardi, being a friend of his, carried a JFK laminated prayer card in his Bible for the rest of his life. Oh. They won the national championship in 1962 against the Giants. But the next couple of years, they lost some players. And they ended up in second place in 64 and again in 65. After the 65 season, Marie fell into a depression again. And she actually ended up in the hospital due to an overdose. Which oh, was, my. Which was tragic because that was the same uh, weekend that Vincent, the son, got engaged and Susan turned 18. And they never even acknowledged Susan's 18th birthday. In part because Marie was in the hospital, but also because uh, it was typical Vince Lombardi fashion. Right. He just didn't pay attention to the details in his own home. Mm. And I don't think that's something, again, we're going to have an interesting time talking about him because I don't know that that's something to condemn the man for. Like his children said, we never doubted that he loved us, but we didn't see the time being put in. Right. So 1965 was the year they really took their game to the next level and became the dynasty that Green Bay would be for a long time. They ended up having a great season, and at the very end, they end up in the championship game against the Dallas Cowboys and his old friend and colleague Tom Landry. It was a great game. The Packers ended up winning at the end, thanks in part to a great play by a guy named Dave Robinson, who incidentally, Dave Robinson was the first black starting linebacker uh, for the Packers who Lombardi put on his team. Mm. Um, there's this great this great play, though. It's the very end of the game. The Packers are up by a score. The Cowboys come down, and they have to score a touchdown to win. So the play starts, and the quarterback, Don Meredith, rolls out. And Dave Robinson, he's the linebacker, and he has the containment. And so he's supposed to go out and stop um, Meredith from scoring, but he's not supposed to pursue Meredith. Well, Dave Robinson, in the second, he sees an opportunity. He charges Meredith. He ends up hitting him. Meredith throws the ball, and it's intercepted in the end zone, and the Packers win the game. Everybody is elated. They win the the NFL championship, and everybody's celebrating. And afterwards, Dave admitted that even though he had the winning play, he was nervous because in review with Coach, uh, coach was still going to dock him two points because he didn't play that play properly. Mm. So just, uh, again, even in victory, which there was a lot of in the 60s, even in victory, this threat of Lombardi always wanting excellence and adherence to the rules still loomed over both the players and the coach. That's a great story. Yeah. And then we'll finish the the 1960s Packers season with what ended up being Lombardi's final season with the Packers. And you may remember this. They go down to the end of the season, and they end up in the 1967 NFL Divisional Championship, again against the Cowboys, and uh, what they called the Ice Bowl. So the field was frozen. It was 13 degrees below zero that game. Um, the One of the commentators famously said in the box, he said, excuse me while I go take a bite of my coffee um, because it was so cold. And uh, but This is just shorts weather for wind, though, right? <laughs> yeah, really, yeah, 13 below. But it was really we do it all the time because of the training that Lombardi put them through. That the Packers win, they beat the Cowboys again. They go on to beat the Oakland Raiders for the Super Bowl, Super Bowl number two. This is the second Super Bowl win, and then afterwards, 
Lombardi announces his retirement as the head coach of the Packers. And the, and the Packers won the first two Super Bowls, right? That's correct. They, they, they won in, technically it was 67, and then 68 was the Super Bowl. Yep. Do we know, did Lombardi have any role in the NFL deciding to go to the to that Super Bowl format? Was that something yeah. that he advocated for? I've always wondered that. Yeah, good question. So up until this time, there were two leagues for football. There was the NFL. We talked about this a little bit in the last episode. Correct. There was the NFL and there was the AFL. And the NFL was kind of recognized as, as the superior league. So the commissioner of the NFL, Pete Rozelle, was a major advocate for really one thing, but it took a lot of things to get there. He wanted more money. He wanted the, the NFL to be successful and rich because that would mean more opportunities for growth. And so Pete Rozelle was really the one that integrated the the two leagues playing in this Super Bowl, um, which before they had never had. They'd each had their individual championships. They merged in 1970, so they actually played the Super Bowl, which was this kind of interleague game, right, until they did merge in 1970. Oh, yeah. See, I never knew that. That's yeah. fascinating. So you'll find out later, though, that the championship trophy for the Super Bowl is, anybody know the name of that? The Lombardi Trophy. The Lombardi Trophy, right. And they named it that specifically because Lombardi was the coach of the first two, and he won the first two. And then, as we'll find out next episode, he dies shortly after. And so it, to honor him, um, both his achievement and the loss of him, they named that the Lombardi Trophy. Okay, so but the creation of the Super Bowl, that was really more Pete Rozelle's vision. Correct, yeah. And Lombardi thought it was a good idea, didn't oppose it or anything like that. Yeah, Just... in fact, he they won the Super Bowl in both of those years, but... His real crowning win in both of those seasons was beating the Cowboys to get to the Super Bowl. Interesting. He kind of felt like if they beat the Cowboys, then that was where the real championship was. So the was. Super Bowl was really more like kind of this exhibition, like postseason thing, yeah. like a bowl game. Right. And they, they, they practiced for it and they won it because he wouldn't allow them to lose. But really, they felt like the NFL was so superior to the AFL. It wasn't it, considered a championship yeah, game at that time. Yeah. It was more like a bowl game for professional players. Okay. I understand that now. Yeah. I, I asked the question, but let me let me ask it again. Yeah. So he just won a Super Bowl, and then he decides to to retire. Yeah. I mean, he's on the peak of his career. Right. There's got to be some decisions behind the scenes that led up to to the decision to retire at that point. There are there are a handful, and we're gonna dive into what those reasons are in addition to the rest of his life and his legacy next episode. <laughs> oh, <laughs> can't wait. All right. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Holy Donors, brought to you by Petrus Development in cooperation with Red Sea Catholic Radio and Back Row Media. Theme music by Tommy Kibb, Third Top Productions, graphics by 86 Creative. If you like us, leave us a review, share us with your friends, and check us out at holydonors.com and on Instagram, at holydonors. Holy Donors, bringing you inspiring stories of radical generosity that have changed the world. What did the coach do when the field became flooded. I don't know what. He sent on his subs. <laughs> <laughs> nice. My parents said that if I got a tattoo, I'd have to get it in a place that didn't matter. So I got it in Appleton, Wisconsin. <laughs> <laughs>